Hello. Welcome to Human Tech, a podcast about the intersection between humans and technology. My name is Guthrie. I'm here with Susan. Hey, Susan. Hey. Hey, Guthrie. How are you today? Uh, well, it is very gray and rainy here. Yeah, it is where I am too. So, you know, I'm trying to, trying to, trying to burst through. Burst through that. Burst okay. Through that. Pretend the sun is shining. So we have, uh, this is, this is actually, this is a better show. We have, we have multiple segments to this show. <laughs> uh, we, yes, we, we do. To, we hope to have a guest on, um, at some point during we're the show. We're waiting for a guest to join us. And, uh, while, while we're doing that, um, I just wanted to, you know, this, this is, uh, what is it? This is called, they call this the A block and like a real, oh, yeah, like yeah, a real, yeah, you got yeah, the that's A like block a and, a block and the the B block. B block. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ad reads. Um, yeah. so, uh, one of the things that we're going to talk about, um, during this show is, and it, it corresponds to our, to our guests. Now we don't do a, our guest today. Um, we don't do a whole lot of talking about more of the, I don't know, advertising strategy, marketing strategy. There's like a big world out there because UX touches a lot of different, you know, it's little, it's little tendrils, you know, it touches a lot of different stuff, touches the dev teams. It touches the, um, yeah, I have no idea where you're going with this little. It touches. Help me, help me. Help me say all the team business, uh, business uh, yeah, strategy, US business strategy, strategy, product management, product design. Yeah. Now, what, with one of our clients, you were actually working with their marketing team rather closely. You have yes. you really you really like their marketing team. Yes. Um, and one of the things that is so interesting is especially let's talk about more like the UX design side of things. We talk a lot okay. about UX research. We all yeah. love UX research, but UX design, um, yeah. uh, the, you know, uh, all, all the different types of um, uh, uh, UI. User interface. User design. interface, right? All that stuff really intersects uh, with exactly how you're building a brand and you're marketing that brand and you're and sort of building a cohesive framework sort of across uh, across it all. So uh, I wanted to talk a little bit more about that and that's why we had um, our, our you know a guest a guest plan and set up. So um, my plan is to uh, bring uh, along um, our guest Margot very uh, very shortly. Um, so, one of the questions I have for you, yeah, and the first question for you is, yeah, where how do you strike a balance between br like brand branding, right? So marketing is like, hey, we want all the th we, we want it to be this way because we're trying to have a cohesive brand. We're trying to yes. we're trying to develop a relationship with a customer and the UX UI part of things, which in some ways is so brand agnostic, right? Because it's like we're just trying to do what's best for the user. So <laughs> what's the balance? How do those two interact? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, that's interesting. So on the one hand, I could say that having a cohesive brand, which includes having a cohesive message, which might include even getting down to the level of, you know, uh, having consistent fonts and typography and color and um, uh, content voice and all those things. And, and I think these are the things our, our guest will be talking about. But you could say that that, you know, being cohesive and being consistent, I mean, consistency is a basic UX principle. And um, 
So whether, uh, you know, being consistent is a UX principle. Now, in what way you're consistent and what that consistency is and looks like, you know, I, I think that's how you're setting your brand. But being consistent, being cohesive is part of being it, part of communicating clearly separate from so that's it works with the it works and and dovetails well with trying to establish your brand but it's also just a principle on its own well and that's and that's one of the i mean that's where these worlds kind of collide because if you're talking about uh brands and trusts uh, trust between with between a customer and a brand I mean, the marketing teams often just are looking at these things in such different ways. It's just such a different, um, the, the terminology is different, the way of looking at things and strategizing about things. It's just so, it's just so different. Um, because, yeah, you know, it's interesting. It is interesting because I've worked with a lot. There's an aesthetic of, to it almost. I've worked with a lot of, of marketing team, you know, marketing departments within an organization. I've worked with marketing agencies you know, that are, have been brought in to the, to the same client I'm doing UX work for and the marketing agencies in charge of the, uh, of all the things they're in charge of. And it is an interesting interplay because I think branding and marketing and user experience, you know, they're definitely related. They're not exactly the same thing, but sometimes there are these huge overlaps and then you get confusion about, you know, so let's say, for example, let's just give an example, content, content strategy. You know, like the UX people will say, oh yeah, we need to be involved in the content strategy. And the marketing people will say, we own the content strategy. And yeah, so yeah, who's responsible? Wait, you're going to be involved? You mean we're going to actually write the the, the content and you guys can I I don't you know I think I'm sure there are lots of UX people who write the content I'm not saying that's a great idea but I'm sure that happens in many organizations hold on hold on how many what? UX professionals that you've worked with in the last five years yeah write the content for a medium-sized business a lot. Okay. So, you know, sometimes the, uh, all right, let's, let's take, for example, a website, just a regular old website in a medium sized company. Who's writing the content all over the board. Sometimes every group and every department is responsible for writing their own content, not a UX person, not even a marketing person. Uh, sometimes the marketing department is responsible for all the content and all the copy. Sometimes uh, a UX person is doing it. It's all over sometimes the board. Sometimes the engineering team is writing the copy. Hopefully not, but sometimes. So it's it's all over the place, which, okay, have you looked at websites lately? You can tell it's all over the place, right? Yeah. Um, but it's an interesting problem. So, for instance, I was working with a client recently. And in their mind, the marketing, you know, copy was, was supposed to be for marketing. And, um, and yet there were UX implications, you know, there was, because from a UX point of view, we were, we were uh, establishing based on our research, 
how much copy there needed to be in order for people to make a choice about what to click on on that page and what kinds of content should be there. I mean, we had UX reasons, user experience reasons for wanting a certain amount of copy and wanting a certain type of copy. The marketing group had their own reasons why they wanted this kind of content and copy versus that. And then the SEO expert had their own <laughs> reasons for what they wanted, which was not the same as what marketing wanted and not the same was what UX wanted. We had three different versions for one page about how much content, how it should be written, and so on. Uh, what are you going to do with that? You know? What are you going to do with that? Okay, so, so I think these are really, these are real world, real problems. So let's. It probably don't get enough attention in my. In let's my let's bring some more attention to okay. this, and we'll see if we actually how much we talk about this topic. Let's bring in okay. our guest. Uh, we have we have here. Um, hey, there I, you she know, is. Hey, Mara. yeah. I was I was going to say. Um, we should. I, I was going to say. Who wants to do the the introduction? Do you want to do it, Susan? Do you want to do it? I shouldn't do it. All right. Well, then that leaves either me or Margo. <laughs> well, you, I was, you, you usually do the guests' introductions, I usually but do we could also, you know, let Margot do it herself. Either way. Okay. Well, we're really happy to have with us Margot. Uh, and Margot, you know, I'm, I am super embarrassed. You know why? I don't know because I, when I've talked to you, I call you Margot, which means I'm not sure whether your last name is pronounced Bloomstein or Bloomstein. Oh, Margot, we are not hearing you. We see you, but we don't hear you. Uh oh, Guthrie, well, technical difficulty. We we will we will we'll con we'll continue. Are, are we there now? Yay! Yay! Okay, <laughs> fabulous. I feel like this has been like the day of I don't know if it's Mercury and retrograde or it's like solar flares. We'll call yeah, it. Solar yeah, we'll blame flares. that. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna blame that rather than than Logitech or Yeti or electricity or anything like that right now. Um, Bloomstein or Bloomstein, either way is fine. So that's you don't fine. have a preference. I'll just call you Margo. I think we can. Yeah, we're good with that. So we're really happy to have Margo. And Margo is actually Guthrie. You know this. Um, yeah. Is our first guest since we went to a live video streaming of our podcast. So we've had lots of guests on our audio podcast, but this is the first time we've done it on our video. So welcome, and we're really glad to have uh, have you join us. And um, Margot is the author of a book called Trustworthy. That's a really interesting book. And we were just kind of talking um, uh, before you joined, Margot, we were talking about oh all kinds of things, but, but we were starting to touch on... Um, uh, uh, branding and and trust and cohesiveness and consistency because uh, because there's there, there's the UX people which is you know sort of our background and they're like well we are in charge because we're the ones who should be communicating to the user and then you have the marketing team and they're like no we're we should be the we're one in charge, we're yeah. in charge of communicating to the user yeah. Um, and so I, I don't know if you have a particular uh, a take on exactly where in an organization, uh, where, how, where, do, who should be in charge in an organization or what types of people should be in charge in, in facilitating that, that relationship between 
mm-hmm. you know, customer and a company? I mean, yeah. it's a it's a tough question because it's a political question, mm-hmm. um, and it's a question of of control and ownership, as well as responsibility. We we sometimes forget that part. I would say it isn't it isn't marketing, it isn't design or UX. It's it's the user that's really in charge of or in control of of communication. And if that communication is successful, they really hold all of the all of the power in that relationship. And I think that's kind of how then we back into those discussions around can we really design fully design a user's experience when they're bringing so much to it as well. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and uh, not to sidestep the question of well, sure. whose responsibility is it then in the organization? Because I think while the user controls a lot of the success of that communication, everyone in the organization certainly needs to to kind of bring a lot to it, to sort of the other side of that rhetorical arena, because we've got what our users bring to it as far as their vocabulary, their expectations, their baggage, their their preconceived notions, and, and the last website that they visited before they came to yours. Right. But then there's, well, what are, what are we bringing into that? into that equation, into that, that arena. And I do think that that is, is something that is shaped by marketing in, if for many product companies, it's shaped by, by merchandising and in-store experiences. It's shaped by the user experience team, um, the, the folks in, in product development, um, looking at kind of the front end of the user experience. It's shaped by folks in service design, but then it's also shaped by the folks in PR. And that's why I think within many organizations, it's important to acknowledge first that this is everyone's responsibility to inform the user's experience and and to help bolster the user, help build their sense of trust in the organization. It's everybody's responsibility, but we need to have the, the direction and the vision set forth by, I like to see it as the CMO, the person that that can say, here is our vision for the organization, how we want to, how we want to contribute to our industry, to what our users, what our audience is experiencing. Here's what we want to do. And now we make good on it through all of those other divisions or teams or verticals. All right. Now I have a question for you though. Well, but before you ask your question, oh, you I'll just have say, another question. No, I don't have a question. I just wanted just to just to clarify because um, it's I I mean we obviously agree with you, and one of the things that we were we were saying right before uh, in our in our little intro right before you jumped on was that uh, <laughs> it is the lack of communication and collaboration between these teams in so many organizations, which is why when you go on a lot of websites, like the the coffee in one section is totally different than the phrasing in the another. And that's totally different than the feeling of the video promo. And like, there's all these like different things. There's no, uh, we were talking about a sense of cohesiveness, which mm. yes, if there was a sort of a structured something in a CMO to help, help have everyone be on the same page, um, you would get that sort of a uh, nice streamlined, consistent uh, experience for the user. So I just wanted to mention that. Yeah. Um, yeah. That ties in yeah. Otherwise, it is a very bifurcated experience, maybe between 
how things look and how they sound. That's that's kind of the classic case. But yeah, or going between divisions. Yeah, um, that's what you see a lot of, right? Yeah. You go, I'm on this page and then I click on a link from that page to go look at something else, which it's the same company. It may be even be the same product or a related product, but now I feel like I'm in another world, right? right. Which, right. yeah, and, and it's, I understand it's really hard, even if you set it up right, which I think in a lot of cases wasn't done, even if you set it up right, that doesn't mean it stays that way because people are adding and changing and they acquire. Or one got written three years ago and now there's four different people on the team. So the team's totally different. Right. Or here's your acquisition, which. Right. A lot happens. There you go. That's a big part of it. We have, have we have a client who who did an acquisition of something and right so so now the pro it's like they like they just kind of glommed the the, the whole like the previous set. website onto the old website you know right right all right and glomming have- on is no way to to proceed with strategy wait a minute the glom strategy is not a real thing <laughs> that's what Margo, that's what your book is about right the glom, the glom strategy, strategy. Yeah, gloming your way to success glom would yeah. have to stand for something <laughs> we should think about what glom stands for no but here's my here's a question though that i have here's because here's what i see a lot of and i'm i'm curious margo if you see this in your work and and what you do about it so i see a lot of really well-meaning people. Okay. So mm-hmm. I, I'm not talking about client, you know, now I'm not talking about people or organizations or people in organizations. They're not saying, Oh, Hey, let's, um, let's just create content and, and messaging. That's bad. Right. No. That is confusing. That's not cohesive that the users won't understand. I mean, nobody's doing that. But sometimes in their in their quest to portray the brand clearly, to uh, uh, you know just portray the brand and the, everything around that, they there is my view of it is is almost like unconsciously they're saying um, we know what's best. We know what we want. We know here we have, here's our vision of what the brand is. And we're going to communicate that in the way we believe is best. Mm -hmm. Often not with a lot of research behind whether that's working or not. And, and the, the users, the visitors, the customers, you know, they're just, Either they're just going to get it, it'll be clear as can be because we have done it so well, mm. or they have to get it. They, they, you know, we'll just, we're forcing it onto them and they will get it. It reminds me of years ago, I gave a, a workshop to uh, museum directors in, of, of small museums in Europe now I know this sounds like a tangent, and it kind of is, but I'll bring it back. Very, very niche. Very niche workshop. It was a lot of fun. It was really different, and you know, it, uh, it was all about behavioral science and the de- the user experience design of physical spaces, right? The museum, and 
And we were talking about, at one point in the workshop, we were talking about the fact that um, people get tired going through a museum exhibit. You know, sure. it's like mentally and physically, it can be tiring in one picture after another, after another, after another. And, you know, what could be done to make that a better experience? And this one guy, he pounded his fist on the table and and stood up and said, it is. Is he did it with a European accent? I won't try and, <laughs> and 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 show you what that's like. But it is There's our emotion, job. Like. It is our job to educate them and to make them want to be there for a long time and make them able to experience the art over a three-hour period. You know, it's like this idea that you know it's too long and people can't do it. He was saying, no, they have mm. to do it. And we are going to, you know, we're going to force them to have a three hour experience, whether they like it or not, because it's good for them. And that's our job. And sometimes I feel with this marketing, branding communication, it's almost like they are going to accept our way of communicating the brand. Yeah. You know, yeah. It, it I, mean, that idea it, that I don't even want to do research and find out that it doesn't work because we they just will. Right, right. I, and I'm sure he had a lot of success with that approach. I should look how, see how someone, that museum's doing, right? Like, hey, hey, if you have a monopoly with, if you have like all the Van Goghs, you know, in your museum, you know, I guess you get to do what you want. <laughs> you know, I've been to the Van Gogh Museum in Amsterdam. And I know you're saying like talking museums about this is is kind of niche, but I use it as um, a, a reference point for a lot of my work. I'm a, I'm a big fan of looking at exhibit design to better understand how we can manage content and manage other elements in the designed experience to bring people through new information, to educate them with a with a degree of entertainment and enthusiasm around that education. So I think that we can learn a lot from that, but I will mm. say the idea of, of forcing your audience of saying, you will like this, this will be an engaging <laughs> three hour experience and you will love it. My head just goes to the last time anyone said like, this will be a wonderful three hour experience. You will love it. That's how we got Gilligan's Island. Like that results in a shipwreck and it's not great. It's entertaining, but it's not great. <laughs> But I do think that idea of saying we know best, we confuse that with saying we know ourselves, because I do trust most organizations to, to be able to articulate their vision, their, their own goals, their communication goals. Sometimes that requires some, some facilitation and work. And a lot of the work that I do with organizations is first helping them establish that message architecture of knowing who they are, who they're not, and who they'd like to be in the hearts and minds of their target audiences. And oftentimes they have not yet had those sort of internal discussions to say, well, you know, do we want to be seen as, as more innovative or more relationship oriented or more creative? What's the difference between creative and innovative? But then they need to take a beat and say, well, What's the difference between creative and innovative for our audience? How do they see us? So I, I agree with you. I think that organizations have the responsibility 
of figuring out that vision of knowing themselves best. It's kind of the, the Nathi Soten carved over the, the entrance of the temple in Delphi, know thyself, do that work first before you attempt to engage your audience. Yeah. I, and that's I hard work. It is, it is hard work. And then, but then see, I'm going to, I'm going to say, okay, great. You did the hard work. Good. But now you have to implement that hard work and you have to implement it in multiple places. I mean, we, we had a client come to us because they had done the hard work and from a marketing and website point of view, it was there. It was showing it that they had they had taken it through and communicated clearly based on that hard work. But then, you know, the website was not all there was, right? Because their customers are, and and this was largely B2B, but their customers were were interacting with them, not just the website, right? For mm-hmm. instance, what about the app and the software? that you use for the products and services that that company has. And that there was a huge disconnect. So, you know, they had a brand that was, you know, uh, being supportive and, and flexible and caring about you and the way you do your business. But then when you actually were using the software, once you, you took them on, you, you, you joined the company and bought their products and services, you know, that experience in just the day to day of using the software was not communicating, you know, all those brand values, like, you know, had gotten lost because it had gotten, it had gone outside the marketing and branding group and now was in development and engineering and, the contractors that were programming the screens and pages and writing the error messages, right? I mean, there was like a whole nother world that, you know, either weren't told what those brand values were and or more likely aren't trained in what that means, right? If we have a brand brand that says, you know, you're flexible and supportive and- Give an error message that, example. That they had, or or just or it oh, doesn't yeah. have to be so, you know, a theoretical error message. Theoretical then. error message that says you know uh, dates don't match, uh, you know transaction denied. It's like uh, uh, okay now what? Know, <laughs> and that's not a very friendly, supportive, flexible message. Right. And so there was this whole you know, uh oh, we're not done. Right. Yeah. We're not done. And in fact, most customers were spending more time in that in the software end, you know, than they were on the on the website end, which was doing all this wonderful communication. But if that communication then isn't consistent across channels, that's where trust falls apart. How do you get organizations to understand that and actually do something about it instead of just, you know, nodding and saying, mm. oh yeah, I can see how that might be important. Yeah. So I think um, that that's, that's that definitely like the initial question. How, how do you get an organization to care? From what I've seen consulting over the past 20 some years, no one cares until they start losing money <laughs> or 
Yeah. They have a public relations like firestorm. Nightmare happens. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Things blow up because content is inconsistent because people were promised one thing. They had like one sort of warranty through one channel and then they were promised something else elsewhere. And then they couldn't make good on it. And or when market share starts declining, competitors are starting to look really good. Competitors are moving into the space. Yeah. So when when they attract that kind of negative attention that ultimately undermines profits or they see customer churn and mm. oftentimes employee turnover because they're frustrated with the publishing environment that's when organizations start to pay attention so what i've found works best with my clients is to point out how inconsistency may cost them reputation and money and time. Oh yeah, um, that's interesting. Yeah, because I think they might they might not make that connection. Right. But consistency, on the other hand, saves them time, saves them budget. And if we look at it just through the lens of, of content and governance, and maybe we can expand that also to design governance through through design systems, we can demonstrate how when when we've already established the guardrails for for designing a system, uh, for designing an interface, when we've already established the rules governing what comprises a good error message, what elements it needs to include, um, or even on product description copy, what elements it needs to include, what part of speech they need to start with. Here are some pre-approved uh, phrases that have already gotten the, the thumbs up from the legal department. When writers and designers work within that framework when they work within established governance guidelines and editorial style guide and existing design system, they save time. They can invest their creativity in solving new and more challenging problems. Things don't have to go back in front of the legal department time and time again. So they definitely save time and save budget across multiple departments. But I think the other thing that many organizations don't necessarily see, and this is always a good thing, I think, to bring before your HR team as well, is that when writers get their their content approved more quickly, whether it's somebody that is casually wanting to contribute to the blog or... or um, or a copywriter that is working on new copy for the uh, the next season's product uh, uh, descriptions, when they get content approved more quickly, people are happier. I mean, when you get something back that is covered with red marks or that says, sorry, this is great, but it doesn't fit with our editorial calendar, or this is great, but it's totally the wrong style and tone for us, then you get kind of dejected. And when people experience that kind of critical feedback again and again, that's when they start feeling a greater sense of dissatisfaction. That's Mm -hmm. when they start looking elsewhere and it results in increased employee turnover. It costs more money to recruit people than to retain good people. So again, consistency in content and design, implementing those sort of elements of governance, that saves budget there as well. Yeah, I think the governance is is so important and kind of tricky. But it, but I actually, I want to uh, Guthrie. I have a, another story. I don't know if I've ever told you, and I'm sure I haven't told Margot, because um, <laughs> I'm thinking about 
what you said, Margo, is so true. I'm thinking that when you said, you know, until there's a disaster, right? And I don't, and I don't believe there's a story I haven't heard. Really? <laughs> okay. Okay, good. Then I'll tell the story and you tell me if you've heard it. Okay. Um, this was because I think some of the most interesting work and certainly what one thing that's made my phone ring the most over the years in terms of people calling to ask for help is when there's a disaster. Then I have many of those disaster stories that people have called me. But this one guy called, I mean, just literally the phone rang and I picked it up and he said, um, I'm calling from the, and he named the company and this was a large insurance company in the Northeast. He said, we have a situation here. And I'm like, okay, what is it? He said, well, my customer service department, uh, they have all announced that until we fix the problems, they've, um, they've unplugged their computers <laughs> and um, they won't answer the phones. So, you know, they, <laughs> the, like the whole customer service department was so fed up with the problems that were causing the customers to call in with problems and the man, you know, the organization wouldn't fix the underlying, you know, these communication problems and so on. They, he said, they literally unplugged the computers and refused wow. to take calls. He's like, "Can you help us?" <laughs> I was like, "Sure." For, for the record, I've heard this story. Oh before. <laughs> darn it, Catherine! Have you heard all my stories? Yeah. No, I it didn't. I didn't remember. Me. But now that you said it, now you know, that you I said remember. it, you've heard that before. Yeah. Yeah, well, it was, I, it was new to me, and I appreciate it. That. Yeah, that was one of the more dramatic ones. Uh, I Yeah, you know, I think, but going back to what you said about governance, you know, years ago, I used to do a lot of, I haven't as much in, recently, but I used to do a lot of work in organizations setting up um, user interface design standards, right? Mm. And um, uh, that was a big thing for like it, yes. well, I won't. I won't say the years because that makes me sound so old. It was a big thing a while ago. Everyone wanted standards. It's right? really fallen off. It has fallen off. And one of the things about creating them is that you know you have to have you have to decide on governance. Uh, it, are these standards that everyone must follow, or are they guidelines like Oof. recommendations? Uh, how do you teach everyone about what the standards and guidelines are? Because you do have pe new people coming in. How do you remind people? Are you uh, reviewing everything and then enforcing it? What about change over time when you realize things have to change? What, how do the do contractors have, know what the rules how are? Do, the con right. do you have a team who's responsible for keeping these things, you know, alive? And it it was like a really... It was a thing for a while that to create them, which in itself was an interesting task because you would bring together, uh, you know, marketing and engineering and the developers and the and the business and the business line owners to agree on what the standards would be. That was an interesting process. But even if you did that, what happened afterwards? And yeah. I I I think unless it is 
critical in terms of direct line to, to revenue or direct line to legal, right? I think people don't set up this the governance and don't don't keep it going. Well, and I think that the challenge around that is we don't always demonstrate people don't always see the immediate benefits of consistency and compliance with governance. Like we were just talking like how do you make the case for it? And I think that's certainly when you're looking to get executive support for a governance initiative, when you're looking to get executive support for greater consistency in content and design, we have those conversations around how you can save time and budget and all um, and reduce turnover. But I think then people that are creating content, whether it is looking to the existing standards, maybe in a hardware company or in a product company, when they're looking to, to fit into existing hardware or existing products with new components, they have to play by the rules. But we need to always balance that with, well, how do you allow for, for innovation to expand those rules or to come up with new and better ways of doing things? Yeah. And I think we always need to demonstrate, I, I should say, the benefits have to be self-correcting and self-evident that, that if I do things that stick with the standards that stick with the editorial style guidelines. If I'm implementing things, kind of the, the existing widgets within the design system, I'm going to get approval more quickly. I'm mm -hmm. going to, this thing will just work. I'm going to be recognized for having a thing that, that just works more quickly. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, the, the publishing culture around that and the design culture around that needs to have a way of saying, well, how do we review new things that maybe don't fit with our existing standards? Right. Well, and I find, do you find this, that people think that they have things that don't fit with the design standards? But then I, if you I, sit down and talk to them, they're like, oh, okay, yeah. If I just tweak this one little thing, it actually does right. fit. Like they think are they are the special snowflake that, you know, can't possibly fit into the the what what you set up, and sometimes that's true, and sometimes it's not true, yeah. right? And nothing new under the sun, and and under the sun, all those snowflakes melt into water. <laughs> yeah, I, I worked with a a client um, several months ago where we were developing a new design system for them, and um, I was helming the the effort to to create a content strategy system building into that design system. And, um, and they shared their existing process for, for how they vet new projects, who uh, project teams need to sit down with to review sort of this, this new vision. If they were saying like, I'm creating this new thing, so I'm going to have to go off and maybe work with a different design firm, work with a different contractor. We're creating something that has never been done before. So this needs to be different. And all the hoops that people had to jump through to say, here's why we need to break the rules. Here's why we need new rules that apply only to us. Mm -hmm. And um, and that it was challenging, but that projects that that did warrant that that very different kind of vision, the ones that met the marks for that were it was appropriate for them to kind of go off and do their own thing. I know one of the um, one of the organizations that. I spoke with extensively when I was writing Trustworthy was the the team behind TED.com. And 
they revealed some of like the challenges that they've faced there with maintaining trust in a system that is very consistent in a publishing standard that is perceived to be very consistent when you've got a talk that makes it onto Ted, that makes it onto the homepage. People assume it has hit certain standards. But even with that, to to maintain the trust of content creators and speakers and some of their harshest critics and their audience to maintain their trust over time, they've had to expand those rules. They've had to expand some of the content types that they create to describe their content because to describe the talks and videos that they share because sometimes the rules and the needs around that content change. I, I sat down with the, um, the, the, the managing producer, I think was her title for TED.com. And she shared how a few years ago, they had come under a lot of criticism. They had gotten kind of a lot of harsh feedback because there were a couple talks on the site that were getting a lot of attention. They were well-produced, well-edited, seemingly played by all the rules. And because of that, the actual content within them was falling under a lot of scrutiny. In one case, the talk, the science that was presented in it had just become outdated because that is the nature of science. We are continually learning and coming up with new, new ideas and revising our theories and whatnot based on those ideas. And they didn't have a way to talk about that, you know, this is a great talk, but it's no longer accurate and relevant. They had another talk that had gotten a lot of attention because the speaker was terrific. He sounded great. Um, the ideas that he was presenting were really, really exciting. And they were completely incorrect, completely spurious. And a lot of the other um, kind of big thinkers in, in his field, I believe he was an astronomer, were, were pointing fingers and saying, this is a problem with Ted. They're uh, they're uh, they're here elevating, you know, ideas worth sharing, ideas worth spreading. But some of those ideas are wrong. Um, just because they're a publisher doesn't mean that we should trust them. And Ted didn't have a way to respond to that. So looking at their existing publishing guidelines, governance guidelines, their existing rules around content didn't give them any answers. So they had to again, kind of think more broadly than their existing rules and, and guidelines. And they ended up convening a, a panel of their harshest critics to say, okay, we hear you that this content is either irrelevant or just wildly inaccurate. Do you think we should remove it from the site? Should we kill kind of all of those, those incoming links and all in the process? Um, should we add disclaimers all around? What do you think we should do? And by gathering their audience, again, these were some of their harshest critics to say, we don't have a way in our existing system to respond to this need. What, what do you think? They kind of engaged in this effort of co-design that ended up bringing more trust into the organization. It, it changed a lot of their harshest critics into some of their most ardent champions because then they were able to contribute to a solution that allowed the organization to survive. It allowed the publishing platform to survive. Ted ended up developing additional content types to add disclaimers on content, to point people to um, more accurate content or more updated videos to say, if you're interested in this topic, look here as well. Um, so that was a case where they looked at their existing governance model and said, our rules don't fully support all of our needs at this time. Let's go out 
Let's let's talk with our critics. Let's come up with another solution and not throw out our governance model, but now let's add to it. And in the process, I think they gained a lot of trust. They certainly brought a lot of their harshest critics closer to them. Um, but it allowed them to kind of live in that model that so many organizations that, that do this right, that they follow as well, that if you have governance guidelines in place, you also need to have a way to continually improve them. And maybe that's every quarter or every six months you sit down and say, well, what are the new content types that people have needed that maybe they're, they're completely arcane and we'll never use them again? Or maybe we need to bring them back into the fold now and continue to update our guidelines. And I think that that, that approach of saying, Guidelines are not hard and fast. They are evolving because our organization is continuously evolving. That's a healthy model to follow as well. Yeah, that's a great story. <clears throat> and I, I would hate to, I mean, what, what a tough position to be in. But it also, you know, points out so many things too, like just, I mean, that's, I think that almost, I think of that almost as kind of on the extreme end, right, yeah. of, of, history problems and content problems that an organization would have. But it's great because it's like, look, if they could solve, right, there's lessons, right, analogous situations that, okay, maybe we don't have that big a problem. But you know what? We got old stuff, you know, at our mm -hmm. site too. And we, this might erode trust. And what are we going to do about it? Right. So that's, I think that's um, uh, such a good story and a good way for people to realize that, you know, if you, there are these, I guess, content and, and timeline history problems, right, and governance problems, mm. and they might seem difficult and, you know, maybe even impossible to solve, but they're not necessarily, right, with some creativity and we're learning from what others have done, you know, some of this might be applicable even in your organization. I think that's yeah. that's great. What an interesting story. Um, you know, and it, it made me think of so many things. Like, for instance, just this idea that um, it, it's, you know, I, one thing I've started doing when I'm working with clients now is from the beginning of the engagement, talking about not just governance, but, you know, like we can do this work now, but then we have to build into it how we change over time. Like that, right. the continuous discovery, the continuous metrics, the continuous research. Like let's not even start unless that continuity is part of it. Because otherwise it's not going to be worthwhile to do all this work. So, so, you know, we're going to build this in from the start, from the very beginning, we know in our plan that we're going to be talking about, and what happens when, you know, there is an initial launch, right? What happens then? And we're going to have a plan for that afterwards. And I think that's another strategy that, you know, and I'd, I'd always rather build it in at the beginning, mm -hmm. right? Otherwise, you get to the end and everyone's excited and they say they're done and they can't go back and get any budget either. So, you know, build <laughs> it into the beginning, right, that there's continuous. And I think, 
you know, luckily, the trends these days, the whole continuous learning, continuous discovery, can, that seems to be a trend. So I, um, I'm, I've tried to, you know, jump on that and, and build it in to the work that we do. Well, and I think that it's um, it's probably another area where where our industry can learn a lot from looking at more traditional engineering and innovation industries. Uh, I mean, I'm just thinking, like when we see like the shuttle launch, all of those types of of, of images that are kind of seared into the collective unconscious uh, unconscious of what it looks like to to see that kind of big event at Cape Canaveral. I think we go back to that, though, and can see that there's a team that focuses on the launch, and then there's a team that focuses on what happens after the the launch. How do we continue to ensure that 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 work is still important Mm -hmm. um, and successful? And, And I don't know that in our industry, we always remember that launch is just day one. What happens after that? There, um, there was a conference that that I was involved in for a couple of years, um, uh, run by Blend Interactive in in Sioux Falls, uh, called the Now What. That basically focused on that problem of and all the challenges around day two and beyond. And there is such a, an enormous audience. For, for those kinds of challenges, because we can see how in so many websites, you know, maybe they launch with great ideas for a blog or for video interviews. They launched with one or two, and then you see digital tumbleweeds kind of blowing through the blog after six months because there was no there there. Nobody had that plan for what happens next and what happens on an ongoing basis. And I think I agree with you. I think building into into our projects, the sense of we're not just aiming for launch, but we're aiming for a successful ongoing mission. That's another way that that we build a, a sense of consistency and continuity with our audiences, that it empowers them because they know what to expect, whether it's to get a newsletter every week on a Tuesday, because that's your publishing cycle. That's what you're committing to. And you've got an editorial calendar, hopefully to support that. Or that you've shared your roadmap with them so that they know when there's going to be a new product coming, what to what to expect, what to anticipate. That's how you build interest and loyalty and and ultimately trust by empowering your audiences with that sense of continuity. And if that's ultimately the end goal of business to empower our audiences, earn their trust so that they're coming back to us with their needs, whatever industry, whatever business you're in. I think that's what we need to focus on. How do we maintain that kind of consistent, ongoing relationship, not just peak with launch and then abandon and then that's it. Grew yeah. up in space. Now, Guthrie, Margot and I have obviously just had a lot to say, and you've been quiet for a while. Do you, are, you, you would jump in if you, or maybe we're just too, too talkative and you feel like you can't jump in. Do you guys know more about this than I do? Well, I don't know. <laughs> you know a lot about, you know, actually, Guthrie, a lot about the research, you know, from a behavioral science point of view about trust. So Sure, sure. But this is, 
That's, this is a little different. That's far afield. You, you guys are doing great. All right. All right. Margo, tell me, because um, I'm also paying attention to the time here. Tell me um, uh, about, um, we, we, I mentioned at the beginning about your book, and I, I see it there behind you. She's got it such a great position. It's like right there, right? trustworthy, right? Mm-hmm. So tell me... Uh, you know, of course, we can say that everyone should buy it, but who who is it really written for? Who do you think is the is is the right audience for that? No, I, I think you had it right. Everyone should buy it. <laughs> you open it up, and you're like, this is not for me. Pass <laughs> it along to a friend. Um, well, I would say that my, you know, I, I guess this is one of those things going back to your original question, where businesses may have in mind kind of who they are, but they don't necessarily test it and see who does their audience think yeah. they are? Are they really hitting it with their audience? My initial audience, I was envisioning designers, UX designers, product designers, product managers, copywriters, content strategists, content designers, UX writers, marketers, um, marketing managers, social media managers, maybe um, all the way up to the CMO, the, the chief creative officer, chief content officer, creative directors. That was the audience to to whom that I was right to whom I was writing and as I was kind of gathering examples and developing the framework that I present in trustworthy, a lot of what I focus on addresses issues of marketing and content and design. Do you want to just give a that, quick blurb? What's that? You want to just give a quick blurb about the book in case someone has no idea what it's about at all? What's the sure? Uh, yeah, so trustworthy looks at the the problem that we have where cynicism undermines so many of our marketing messages. Sales cycles are taking longer. A lot of marketing content falls flat. People just don't trust brands, trust products, trust media entities the way they used to with good reason in many cases. And and we can say, you know, maybe sales cycles are taking longer because of the pandemic or something. But this goes uh, a few years before that as well. We've mm-hmm. seen kind of problems in, um, in many organizations. And it's because with this kind of growing consumer cynicism and problems around trust, people have a sense that they don't know where to look for, for reliable information. And if you're in marketing, so much of what you do is saying, here's what you should know about a product that's coming. Here's why this is the right product for you, or here's why our services will benefit you. You can look around, but this is going to be right for you. And people are kind of pushing back on that. So I wanted to see in cases where people don't push back on that, but where they lean in and they say, tell me more. I'm learning from this this content. I'm learning from this experience. Um yeah, this is where I'm going to turn to for the next pair of jeans that I buy or for um, my cell phone service plan, or this is going to be where where I get information about public health and keeping my family safe, or when I'm engaging with, with government crime statistics and bringing those back into my media organization, this is where I'm going to turn for that information. I wanted to see in all of those cases where people trust brands what are those organizations doing right? Whether they're in consumer packaged goods, in, in retail, in healthcare, in insurance, um, in government, what are they doing right? And in looking at them, I realized there's an internal framework 
in how they present information visually and verbally for how they build trust. And it starts by empowering their audiences through a consistent voice, again, visually and verbally, and that touches on the consistency that we've been talking about, the right volume of information. So they're presenting the right level of detail for their audience, again, in verbal text or in the amount of detail in an image or in a diagram. So it's the right voice, the right volume, and they're presenting that information with a degree of vulnerability, not a lot of bravado. Instead, they're saying, here's our process, here's what we know, here's what we don't yet know, let us bring you into that. That's what Ted did. One of the other examples I share, that's what Zoom has been doing really, really well over the past two years too. So we unpack that. So that's what I focus on in Trustworthy. And kind of I reverse engineering. Right What's that? Kind of reverse engineering. Yeah. And um, I think that that's helpful guidance and some good lessons for anyone in design, anybody that runs a design team, anyone in content or marketing. But I've also been hearing from a lot of people in in HR, in um, different areas of, of retail, in, um, in healthcare. Increasingly over the past two years, I've had a lot more conversations with public health officials around their communication as well. So I think really any organization that is in a position of of empowering its audience and needs to, that's that's who Trustworthy is for. Yeah, it's so interesting, isn't it, Margo, when you write a book, because I've written some books too. And, you know, it. I think, well, the book publisher insists that you define the audience, right? And, and I think that's really useful. And I know when I've written my books, I would have like a developmental editor who was constantly, well, wait a minute, remember who you're writing for, you got to revise this section, right? Um, but then when it's out there, you kind of, you know, it's kind of interesting to see who really is reading it and who's really talking about it. And sometimes there are surprises there and it's not, it's not exactly who you thought was going to be interested in it, which I, I think is fun. I didn't, I didn't never had a problem with that, but uh, it's kind of interesting how that works. Margo, it's been so fun having you on the podcast as our first guest on our live stream. And um, if people want to get hold of you, what is the best way to do that? Well, thank you so much. This has been such a wonderful conversation. I really enjoyed this. Uh, people can reach me um, usually on Twitter. I'm at mbloomstein, or you can find me through appropriateinc.com. Um, and uh, yeah, I look forward to to hearing whatever thoughts people have on, on the subject. Like we were saying, this is everybody's responsibility. And uh, so let's get to it. All right. Awesome. Thank cool. you so much. Guthrie, you Thank got you anything so to close us out? Um, uh, you know, I should have like a really snappy yeah, kind of sum it all up, yeah. you know, just like, uh, yeah, uh, you know, oh, yeah, we have, we have a, we have a, we have a thank you from someone who was, uh, all right. <laughs> good. Someone who's listening in. No, I, I will just say if anyone wants to get a hold of uh, us, uh, the team W it's info at the team W.com. Um, again, uh, we, we think this stuff is important. Um, I really think, uh, you know, we talked a couple episodes ago, um, a little bit about trust, uh, with, with, um, 
especially in, I guess I would say, sort of a modern internet context. You know, you have the ki Kickstarters of the world. Uh, it's a lot easier for companies to pull the rug out on stuff and because they're sort of in a distant place far away as opposed to, you know, maybe your neighborhood hardware store where you are interacting with physical things face-to-face. -face. Uh, just a lot of people have been burned a lot and it's almost sort of the norm in some uh, online cultures like cryptocurrency, that's like a very common thing. Um, you know, a lot of startups, you know, the whole purpose is to see if you make it big and if you don't, okay, we're just going to shut everything down um, and people are just kind of standing around being like, I thought there was a product here and now the product just, just doesn't exist and the services get, you know, um, Google changing their chat app about every 18 months. Uh, so just, just when you sort of buy into an ecosystem even, within one company they're like okay we're changing the whole thing and now you gotta log into all different so i think it um you know maybe it's always been this way maybe people are getting more cynical um because of that but uh certainly these are really fantastic topics we probably could have just kept going for another 10 hours so um <laughs> i I, sh I should i shouldn't have brought up more things yeah now <laughs> you're bringing up more uh, no, no this was your succinct summary Succinct, succinct summary. No. Um, so again, I just want to uh, thank everyone for being on. I think this was a fantastic discussion. Um, we should have uh, uh, it. Sometimes we have like the really technical UX stuff, and sometimes it's good to go more or bigger picture, broad strategy. And so, uh, I think this was a really great balance. So, thank you. Um, thanks, Margot. Thank you so much. This was All a lot right. of fun. Thanks everyone for tuning in. Bye have bye. a great rest of your day. Bye.